Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Xavier Richevis with the Investigative Journalism Foundation and Chloe Logan of the National Observer. They're co-authors of Big Oil Lobbyists Outgun Environmentalists with Access to Most Federal Ministries. So welcome to the to Energy Talks, folks. It's great to be, be here. here. Thank you. Now, I'm going to set a little context. I've been covering the oil and gas industry for a long time, and CAP is the biggest lobby group, Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Um, but it is far it's far from being the only one. There are a number of smaller organizations, um, and I'm probably going to get their name. I remember their acronyms, but not necessarily what those mean. PSAC, for instance, uh, which is the uh, service industry. There's the drillers, contractors. There are probably, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe six to 10 of those uh, that probably lobby in, in Ottawa on a regular basis. And and then there are other groups, I would imagine, that lobby, you know, business-related groups uh, that are lobbying for oil and gas-related issues. Um, Chloe, have I got it kind of right? Is that the eco the lobbying ecosystem for for big oil in Ottawa? Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because when we were putting this together, we were trying to get a, a complete list. And I mean, it feels kind of endless because like you said, there are smaller groups and things like that. But I think that, I mean, CAP is is huge, like you said, because CAP is representing a lot of these oil and gas groups. At the same time, they're also lobbying by themselves. Um, yeah, so I think that there's there's a big picture there. Um, Xavier probably can say a bit more about the actual list we used, but yeah, I think that there's certain groups that come to mind, but there there are way more. I mean, the amount of oil and gas lobbying is just wild. It's it's huge. So yeah, I think that's fair to say. Okay, Xavier, uh, what's your take on that question? Uh, for sure. So I think as part of this project, we obviously had to come up with lists that are represented enough of the oil and gas industries and environmental groups. And so what we did is for uh, we came up with basically our own list, but also speaking with academics and experts who could verify that those are, is a fair representation of those different sectors. Um, on for environmentalists, we stuck with the corporate mapping projects lists of those lobby groups that are the most important. And uh, for the oil companies and oil lobby groups as well, we mostly stuck with uh, we stuck with oil and gas affiliated companies on the Toronto Stock Exchange, the producer members of CAP, Pathways Alliance, um, and other various lobby groups like the Mining Association of Canada, which is involved in oil and gas production. Um, and so we felt those lists would be the most representative. I'm, I want to ask you about Pathways Alliance because this is a bit of an interesting wrinkle. For a long time, the oil uh, sands companies, which are 
you know, easily the the largest oil uh, companies in Canada, Suncor, CNRL, Synovus, Imperial Oil, Meg Energy, uh, ConocoPhillips Canada. And for a long time, they were part of CAP. And there have been some fissures in the oil and gas politics uh, over the last 10, 12 years. And the oil sands companies now have, for all intents and purposes, left CAP. And they've gone to form the Pathways Alliance, and that's their their primary industry group now. And I wonder if, if uh, Chloe, maybe you have a take on what that actually means, because now the, you know, CAPC was, is probably mostly dominated by juniors and intermediates, service companies, uh, those sorts of, which would seem to suggest it has, would have far less clout in lobbying than it did when the oil sands companies were active. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not an, an expert on, on this specific, uh, transition, like you said, between cap and pathways, but I mean, pathways lobby specifically on car carbon capture, correct? It does, but I think it's 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 broadening its mandate to all oil sands issues, uh, and it's I, I did an, an interview with uh, Mark Cameron, who's one of the vice presidents, and we talked about that uh, a little bit. And so my impression is that it's more than just carbon capture, utilization, and storage. Though so that at the present is a you know a big part of their focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so to me that would. I mean, that presently being their focus, that would make sense to me why companies would shift over because carbon capture is a huge lobbying topic. It's something that we also see CAP lobbying around as well. So, I mean, I still think it, to me, CAP still runs the hill. I mean, we see that numbers wise. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's like the the beginnings of a transition and maybe we'll we'll know more in coming years. I want to get your take uh, on uh, an issue that came up here. Uh, ever since carbon capture utilization and storage became an issue, uh, the the oil the, the oil sands companies have been asking. What they've been saying is, and I guess this is, goes back to when they they launched Pathways Alliance a couple of years ago. They've said, look, it's going to cost us seventy five billion dollars to decarbonize the oil sands, and we think that. Uh, that uh, CCUS will comprise about two thirds of that effort. And we think that the uh, governments of Canada should pay two thirds of the cost. So basically they were asking for $50 billion and they're not shy about it either. I mean, Cameron went in during the interview said, yeah, that's, that's what, what we're asking for. Now here's where it gets interesting. Uh, when the, uh, uh, the uh, Trudeau government brought in uh, investment tax credits for CCUS. For they had a separate, they have a separate one for oil and gas, and it's only seven point one billion dollars between now and twenty thirty. And I don't think that's just the oil sands. I think that's the oil and gas industry writ large. So that's only a very small percentage of what the industry was asking for. Is that a big loss? That sounds like a a, a real um, clear message from the from the federal government that you know you may have lobbied, you may have asked, but we're not going to give it to you. Chloe, what's your take on that? 
I mean, I've heard from environmental groups who I think feel the opposite. They feel like the federal government is backing carbon capture in a significant way. I mean, an example that comes to mind for me is CAP lobbying for the feds to cover 75% of its cost for planned carbon capture facilities. And then the next year, Finance Canada came forward and partially delivered that ask. It offered a credit to cover 50% of the cost for those facilities. And that has a public price tag of $2.6 billion over the next five years. And then on the other side, you know, you have these climate groups that for the most part are shouting from the rooftops that carbon capture is unproven, expensive, and that there are much better ways to reduce planet warming greenhouse gas emissions, namely by winding down fossil fuel production, halting approval of new projects while supporting a just transition. So I think I'm viewing this from the lens of the environmental groups because that is how that's that's what our our project focused on was kind of the push and pull between the two. So I don't know. Yeah. So I guess I'm kind of answering that from their, their perspective in a way it's like, what does the other side think about what the oil and gas industry is gaining in terms of carbon capture? I, I would say that they, they think that they're gaining a lot. Well, and you know, that's a fair perspective because the oil and gas let's face it. I mean, a powerful lobby B often gets what it asks for. Yeah, right? definitely. So yeah, uh, you confirmed. know, yeah. So Xavier, you're the, the you're the data guy uh, on this project. How do you measure whether uh, you know lobbying efforts? There's volume, fair enough. You know the numbers. Uh, what I'm looking at here in my prep notes is Stephen Harper when he was pre- the conservative president or uh, prime president prime minister. Cap lobbyists met with him, his government, 879 times, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, 897 times as of June. Uh, but what about quality? How do we measure whether they actually you know, got what they were asking for, or maybe just the ministers were listening to them, to them politely and thinking about the baseball game or the hockey game? You know, that's an excellent question, because so... The way we current we recorded this data is we have access to the Federal Registry of Lobbyists. And as part of the Federal Registry of Lobbyists, you know, any oral or uh, prescribed, oh, sorry, arranged communications have to be lobbied. But that's really uh, that's really all that has to be disclosed. Um, they have to give certain sort of like tags around maybe like we're meeting around energy or meeting around taxation. But beyond that, we don't know a great deal. We just know the dates. We know who they met with and we know about what they met, but we don't, sorry, sorry, we don't know about what they met. We know specifically just who they were meeting with. And then from there, you can surmise maybe what they were hoping to discuss. Um, In terms of quality beyond that, it's a big data gap that we know very little about. But what we can say is that oil and gas groups definitely met more with more powerful, more powerful ministries than those environmental lobbyists. Right. Um, So obviously environmental lobbyists made a great deal with environment and climate change Canada. Um, And but natural resources Canada meets far more with the oil and gas with oil and gas lobbyists. And you could because natural resources Canada has more pull when it comes to maybe legislation than environmental climate change Canada. You can say that oil and gas companies definitely get maybe more of what they're hoping to achieve there because of the regulatory body that it is. and I think that's unfortunately the most uh, we have in terms of data. 
Well, that's really interesting. I, I mean, in that case, we're we're kind of left to infer uh, that the the lobbying is successful when we see oil and gas kind of get what it wants. And I think prime one of the the, the issues that stands out for me is the industrial emitters carbon tax, because uh, back in oh I remember reading a, a cap document in 2018. It was a climate policy document, and and they were talking about how. Uh, they wanted the output-based pricing system applied to um, uh, to oil and gas because they were worried about carbon leakage, right? So carbon leakage is when you you apply some kind of a climate policy or plant po climate policies, and you hobble the domestic, you make the domestic company un uh, uncompetitive, and then they pick up and they they move their cement plant or whatever it is to another jurisdiction that doesn't have very strict climate policies. And so that's carbon leakage. And so the question, I mean, you know, they, they got it. And what it means is essentially uh, an 80 to 90% discount on the carbon price. You know, oil sands who have incredibly emissions intense crude pay very little carbon tax. Now it's getting, it's been, they toughened it up in the last few months. That So fair enough and, and about time. But it's not like the oil sands plants in northern Alberta are going to pick up and move somewhere else. There's only one other oil sands deposit in the world, and that's in Venezuela. I don't see I don't see Suncor, you know, moving to Venezuela anytime soon. So, you know, that to me was you could see in 2018 or soon earlier where CAP was going with this, and they got what they wanted. And that to me looks like I can infer from that. That it was a lobbying success it was is that a fair comment chloe yeah i think so and i think you said it earlier as well that what the fossil fuel industry wanted it often gets and there was an example with the carbon capture facilities and we're just and, and we we just we we've seen such record numbers and there's there's no there's no wondering why it's a really important time for climate and they're, you know, push, they're pushing back. They're trying to find ways to continue extraction. And I think overall, I mean, I'm trying to think of some specific examples, but I mean, I so often write articles that are, you know, environmentalists, experts, et cetera, being disappointed by the federal government's climate policy and climate news. And then on the other side, you have oil and gas and they're, they're happy when it's weakened. So I'd say... I'd say yes that they're successful. Yeah, you see that often. Uh, the uh, uh, federal uh, clean fuel regulation uh, was one that got weakened and delayed. Uh, yeah. And and I think and the cap was cap in the industry generally were were very much against it. So that's just one example. But here's another one. I'm, I'm and Xavier. I'm going to direct this question to you because I'm curious if this shows up. Um, I don't know if you folks have noticed, but in the last year or so, there's been LNG exports has assumed a huge role in the narrative, both from the industry and from the Alberta government, particularly uh, led by, you know, since Danielle Smith became premier in, in last August. And the argument is, it, it, well, it's kind of bizarre, actually. What they want to do is they they say, if we take clean Canadian gas and we turn it into clean liquid uh, liquefied natural gas LNG and we export it over to China and it magically displaces coal 
from power plants, uh, then the emissions are halved, essentially. And therefore, the best way to decarbonize the world is to export a whole lot more clean Canadian LNG. And not only that, but it gets better. They, under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, they think that they will be able to claim to get a carbon credit for the, for the avoided emissions, it's called, avoided emissions, between the coal emissions that would have taken place and the lower emissions if China switches, switched over to Canadian LNG. And they, uh, and I'm wondering, Xavier, if this idea of Canadian LNG as an emission reduction strategy in other countries like China, if it comes up, if it shows up in the lobbying data that, uh, that you've been going through. Unfortunately, it doesn't, no. Uh, we, as again, unfortunately, the, the federal registry is, is, is very limited in what we can see and what they are talking about, you know, and maybe that's something that should be discussed more and should, should it be expanded to at least maybe some like talking points. Um, uh, but yeah, unfortunately, it's just limited to issues like taxation, the energy, the environment. Um, yeah. So the, it, it sounds like there are inherent limits to the kind of data that was made available uh, about the lobbying. And would you say, Xavier, that that maybe it's time to uh, reform the regulations so that more information is provided about, you know, what what industry talks to ministers about behind closed doors? I think that's a very fair point, actually. Yeah. So lobbyists, when they register with the federal register lobbyists, again, we're only focused on the federal at the federal level right now. Uh, they do have to submit sort of like their general talking points as part of their registration, what they are hoping to achieve, who they're hoping to meet, what topics they're hoping to discuss, but nothing more beyond that. And then when it comes to the communications level, not nothing else is really added on beyond that. So oftentimes what that means is you'll go through the Federal Registry of Lobbyists and you'll read a, a lobbyist registration and they'll have all their talking points, but they can kind of write anything and they can and they can actually kind of flood it with a lot of information. They can click that they want to talk to every department. They they can write that they want to talk about, you know, 50 different things. And obviously all that information is great. But then when it comes down to brass tacks and it comes down to seeing, hey, that communication that happens on that day or over the course of several days, there isn't a great deal that we can know. Um, it's not something that I don't feel like this is something that would be too difficult to do. I think it would be very valuable to journalists and to academics to track what's happening. Um, and it would really just build, be building off the system that currently exists. Yeah. And there's another reason. It's not just that uh, industry asks for things and then gets or doesn't get it. It's that government very often leans on industry for when it's designing policy and regulations. And so industry can have a tremendous influence on how it's regulated simply because it has access to data, it has access to expertise, it has experience that government just simply doesn't have enough of, couldn't possibly have enough of. And so it, I understandably, I guess, leans on industry when it's doing policy and regulation work. And does that show up in the lobbying data? 
in terms of specific, uh, just to understand specifically what turns up. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, meetings, meetings between lobbyists where they're talking, not uh, where they're talking specifically about policy and regulation design. It does show up. Yeah, it shows up in their registrations, their initial registrations that they have to update, um, you know, uh, uh, with every different cycle. Um, but it does. Yeah. And is that kind of lobbying um, more or less prevalent than, say, other kinds of lobbying where they're lobbying against against the legislation or for, you know, CCUS tax credits, that sort of thing? Unfortunately, uh, that's something that uh, we haven't had the chance to look into. No. Gotcha. So, Chloe, after having gone through this exercise and, you know, you've done the deep dive into, uh, you know, lobbying by the, the oil and gas uh, organization, you know, the trade associations like CAP, what's your, what's your one or two top takeaways from that exercise? I think one of my takeaways would be that their full influence can't be measured just in the number of meetings. I think the meeting numbers show an accurate picture, but um, in the in the article, we note that um, when government initiates meetings, with oil and gas or, or with whoever, whenever it's a government initiated meeting, that doesn't show up on the lobbying registry. Um, we linked to an article published by The Breach, which documented some of those meetings. They have notes from a 2020 meeting initiated by Natural Resources Canada, where it calls itself a champion for the oil and gas industry. Um, I don't think something similar is happening to environmental groups. And at the same time, you also reference this, the um, the resources oil and gas has, you know, their army of lawyers that Senator Rosa Galvez referred to in the article. And then I think that, yeah, so that's one, that's one big point that I kind of thought a lot about while writing. And then I think there's kind of an overall big picture as well that's important to think about, which is that oil and gas lobbyists, for the most part, lobby to weaken climate policy while environmental groups push to strengthen it. And this is at a time when there are catastrophic outcomes happening across the world from the climate crisis, which is caused mostly by the global fossil fuel industry. And then there are other direct impacts, such as recent news of the tailings pond leak in Alberta's oil sands, how Imperial Oil failed to notify Athabasca, Chippewan, First Nation of the release of tailings until months and months after the incident. And I think that context is really important when we're talking about the immense influence the oil and gas industry has, specifically in the federal lobbying scene. One of the reasons I asked the question is because I'm, as I uh, reported over on the energy transition over the years, one of the things that becomes very apparent is the power of incumbents to inhibit change. And you see that, you know, the oil and gas industry is a huge incumbent, uh, but it's not the only one. I mean, you see it in, in utilities, uh, you know, elect electricity, electrical utilities, uh, crown corporations, they're very conservative, you know, risk averse kinds of organizations and they push back against change. You see it in, in other industries. 
And and so one of the the indicators of in, incumbents inhibiting change is the extent to which they lobby government because government plays such a big role, particularly in this energy transition around climate policy and then the regulatory framework. Xavier, I'm going to ask you the same question, and we've only got a couple of minutes, so uh, I'll ask you to be brief, but if you could give us your one or two takeaways. I think the biggest takeaways that we can take uh, as part of this story and as part of other stories that we did with uh, the Canada's National Observer is that there is that, you know, we have these uh, public databases or these public registries that are offered by the federal government. And they do provide us some insight into the scale of, of, in, of sectors like oil and gas, like environmental groups. And so we definitely, it, it definitely allows us to do stories like this and to understand better the scale of them. Um, but there is also a lot missing. There's more that could be, that could be done to paint a better picture for academics and for journalists who want to learn more about lobbying within the country. And, you know, yeah, like you say, like oil and gas, definitely an incumbent, definitely a really powerful force. Um, but the the landscape is changing very often, right? Like a, a couple of years, you know, Mining Association of Canada, CAP, are, were really big players. Um, a number of years ago, they still are today, but we see bigger players also like Pathways Alliance today. And this really, and uh, having better numbers and better data around these, players gets us the better, the best topics and sorry, the best, uh, the best research possible. Well, Chloe Logan of the National Observer and Xavier Richet-Vis of uh, the Investigative Journalism Foundation, thank you very much for doing this. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.